Hey, Life Canton. Roger here, one of the directors. So glad that you're here. If you are a brand new listener, I want to say welcome uh, and you belong. We believe that you belong to God, so you belong to us. And as a church, we want to get you plugged in. So please fill out a Connect card. You can find those on our website or on our Church Center app. But fill one of those out so we can answer any questions you may have and reach out to get you connected to our community. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. I think you're in for a treat today. But either way, whether you are returning or first time, just want to remind you that God is up to a lot in our community has been up to a lot in our community for quite some time. And if you want to participate in that, I would encourage you to take the opportunity to do so through giving, to give faithfully to the mission of God and the mission of this church to support what God is up to. So uh, you can do that again on our Church Center app or head over onto our website. But uh, today is our Cross Equals Love series finale, also Easter. So happy Easter. But Pastor Jared is bringing an Easter message that I think will be appreciated and maybe different than uh, other Easter messages you have heard. So give that a lesson and I'll catch up with you in just one minute. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. You can take a seat. Contain that energy. You're going to need it later, okay? I promise. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. I am very glad that you are here with us today. And uh, if you join later online, maybe you missed it, uh, you join us on the podcast. We're glad that you're joining us a little bit later as well. We uh, would love to get you connected as well. If you're new or newer here, there's going to be a QR code that comes up on the screen. You can take your phone out. You don't even have to feel bad about it. Go ahead and scan that code and then fill out the connect card. We want to know your story. We're going to hear a little bit about you and then help you take a next step here if you would like to do that. Uh, We have a saying here too, in case you're new, uh, that we have a hope. And our hope for you is that you reclaim your identity in Jesus and bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. So everything we do is centered around that, including Easter. So happy Easter once more. And uh, sometimes... Yeah, we cheer. Sometimes the person on this stage, uh, all throughout the globe and a variety of different churches, will say, He is risen. And typically the crowd responds with, He's risen indeed. If you don't know it, that's okay. That's all right. What I am finding out about this church is not only are we increasingly becoming a multi ethnic church, but I'm finding out. uh, Yeah, that's good. We're also a multilingual church. There's people that speak a variety of different languages other than English. And so what I wanted to try, just for my own selfish pleasure, is to hear non-English responses to He is Risen. Can we try that? Here we go. He is Risen. Love it. Yes. We got some Spanish. I think somebody who speaks a language that is associated with Nigeria, some Kenya. Uh, it's all kinds of other languages. I love the different languages. It's cool. And I love to be able to hear that and to say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. But for some of us, as I've gotten to know a lot more people and a lot more situations to say he is risen indeed, or even to believe it, is becoming increasingly difficult as well. Maybe you're not in that place. Maybe you don't necessarily feel all of the joy that comes with Easter. Maybe you can't get your heart and your mind to a place to say that and to believe it in your heart. I get that. I've been a part of church all my life, been in churches uh, ever since I was a little kid, and then I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 20 years. Would you believe it if I told you that I have never once given an Easter message before? This is my first one. So I, I don't know. Don't clap. 
And don't clap because we don't know how it's going to go yet, okay? <laughs> Just wait till the end. But I've, I've been around a lot of Easter messages, a lot of Easter stuff, and I've had a whole lot of time to like think about my thoughts about Easter and specifically my thoughts on Easter sermons. There's a whole lot of them out there. And so I thought, well, what would my unique contribution to the vast array of Easter messages be? What would I do? Would I do anything differently? Like, do I tell a different story? I don't, that, would, that would be weird, right? Like, you can't do that. So what's going to be my contribution to the Easter messages that are out there? And oftentimes, if you're in pastoral ministry, you're in church ministry, church leadership, you are programmed, programmed to design Easter in such a way where you think about new people. How are you going to make an impression on new people? Why? So that they come back. And so that they keep on coming back. So they keep filling the seats. And so you think about Easter in that way. And unfortunately, in the context that I've been in, which have been mostly white churches, mostly evangelical churches, Oftentimes, we spend a ton of energy talking more so about what I think is glorified entertainment than it is spiritual formation and actually drawing people into a unique, authentic, genuine relationship with God. And the problem with that is, is we spend energy and money and time and finances talking about things like, and I'm not even joking, we can't just do an Easter egg hunt. We have to drop Easter eggs from a helicopter. Like, that's a legit thing that's been discussed. Or uh, there was one church down the road from where I used to work that they had the pastor uh, skydive onto the church lawn and then go up and give their message because that has to do with Easter and something. I don't know how that works, but it worked for them. And, and I couldn't help, in my sort of agnostic self, ask the question, does this stuff actually work? Like, are people actually drawn into that stuff? Like, for real, drawn into it and actually want to engage in a conversation around Jesus and around faith because of those things. Because honestly, what it ends up being, in my opinion, and what my experience has been, is that Easter becomes all hope, all happiness, all joy, all the time as a way to almost mask the pain and the suffering that come before it. And maybe you feel that too. And so it's hard for you to be able to say with confidence, he has risen indeed. And so I think about it like this. Like if you ever watch the local news, you'll have the news anchors sitting behind the desk and it's kind of presented in this way where it's like, you know, unfortunately there was a fatal car crash on I-96 today. Now over to Bob and sports. It's like, wait, hold on. Like how did we, how did we make that transition so quickly? Like that, I gotta, I gotta, that's gotta compute in my mind a little bit. And so I wonder if the way that we've presented Easter has been a mask for the pain, it feels disconnected from everyday life because it's all hope, all joy, all the time. My question is, is how do we reconcile Easter with everything else that is going on in our lives? How do you connect Easter to your everyday life? Does it connect? I want to explore that in maybe a slightly different way than perhaps what you're used to with Easter messages. How does Easter connect to your everyday life? We've been in uh, this Old Testament book. We've actually been spending significant and intentional time leading up to this moment in a book called Isaiah. It's an Old Testament book. It's a prophetic book talking about things yet to come. And Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God to the people of God and trying to give them some bit of encouragement and truth along the way because the reality is that the people of God have been in a very despairing situation. 
They have been overcome over and over by other oppressive empires and regimes, and they are constantly filled with suffering and pain. And so Isaiah comes along to give them this message of hope, to give them a prophetic promise. And so they begin to talk about and think about the future that lies before them. The future involves this sort of Messiah-like or Savior rescuer, this figure who's going to come and get them out of their situation that they find themselves in. And so there's some excitement around that, but also it comes with a little bit of, uh, it's not super clear. The expectations aren't necessarily what they had hoped for because the way that Isaiah talks about this figure is he calls him a suffering servant. The servant is going to suffer. And it's like, how, how does that work? I don't understand how the person that we're expecting to come and to rescue us, to take us out of this situation, is going to have to suffer. That's a challenging thought for the people of God, partly because they've been suffering this whole time. So they're not necessarily looking forward to more suffering. And they certainly wouldn't have been excited about their rescuer to have to suffer as well. There's a whole lot of complexity here. It feels unresolved. And everything that we talked about up to this point has felt like a lot more pain and suffering than it has joy and has Easter. But there are three more verses left in this chapter. And so if you're just joining us, you're joining us on the end of this series. Maybe, maybe Isaiah will clean it all up for us and remove some of the complexities in these final three verses of this prophetic vision, this hope of a savior, a rescuer. Let's check it out, starting in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along on the screen. It says this, But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Okay, it doesn't sound a whole lot like Easter just yet, but let's maybe unpack this. I mean, first of all, we've got the good plan to crush him. That sounds like an oxymoron. Like that doesn't, how how does that work? How does goodness coexist with grief? That doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And not to mention the violence to crush him. That seems really violent. People that I've talked to that are newer to the Bible or maybe a little bit skeptical about faith can't deal with all of the violence in the Old Testament, and especially when they're reconciling that with this concept that God is love, but there's all the violence in there. How do I deal with that? Let's just talk about some of the context of where this passage finds itself for a moment. First of all, in this ancient world, not just in the Bible, but the surrounding ancient world is filled with violence. It's just a way of life. That's how they understand the world. And they have this belief in multiple gods, that the gods are violent deities and that they institute all of these different ideas about how the world works. They control the different elements of nature. And so it was, uh, it was often found that a sacrificial system or an offering was done on behalf of the people in order to make the gods happy. Why do you need to make the gods happy? Well, the gods control everything. So if you want your wife to have a child, if you want your crops to grow, if you want uh, your land to expand, your territory to expand, or if you want your tribe to defeat another tribe, well, then you should make a sacrifice. You should make an offering to the gods to appease them, to make them happy because they are angry. But if you can make them not angry, then they'll be on your side. This is the world, this is the culture that the ancient Hebrew people, the Israelites, the people of God, find themselves in. But there's a difference. There's a difference 
for the people of God, for the Hebrew people, because it's not so much them trying to appease the God's anger. Now it's God, this singular God, Yahweh, who they call Yahweh, and an agreement made with this servant who, on their behalf, they are going to make an offering. They are going to be the ones to make the sacrifice for the people, not the people making the sacrifice to the gods. And not only that, but this agreement is supposed to bring about joy and and goodness and prosperity. This is a different kind of perspective within the ancient world. So, so, so far, it kind of seems like we're off to a little bit of a good start. Maybe there's a little bit of Easter hope within this passage, but I'm not so sure about the coexistence of goodness and, and grief. I don't necessarily have categories for that. Maybe you don't either. The ancient people were struggling with this. Maybe verse 11 will help us out a little bit more. Let's go on to verse 11 and see what it says there. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Okay. Still not getting to the Easter joy just yet. I don't see any Easter eggs in there either. So a little bit confused about that, but we got more anguish, more pain, more suffering. Like, what's that about? When are we going to get out of the anguish? When are we going to get out of the pain and the suffering? And not to mention, but this is kind of confusing. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, what we know about this chapter is that his anguish ends in death. Not metaphorical, not symbolic, physical death. How will he see what is accomplished if he's dead? Like, I don't understand how that works. How is he going to experience the results of his death if he's dead? That doesn't make sense. And not to mention the anguish that they're feeling. They want to be done with that. They want to be, they, they, they like the satisfied part. I want to experience satisfaction, don't we? Like, we only want to experience satisfaction. We don't want to experience anguish. This is how the people feel. And, and you and I can, can relate to this, right? Like we live in either or land. Either it's this or it's that. If it's not this, it has to be that. We need finality. We need closure. We need black and white. We need clarity. Either it's this or it's that. Let me just give you some real uh, lighthearted examples for a moment. When I first moved here from Minnesota and started meeting Detroit sports fans. All right. There are different extremes, okay? I met people who are like, ride or die. I love all my teams. I will support them to death. And then I met other people who are like, they suck. They're horrible. They're never going to do anything. Where do you fall on the spectrum? This is an opportunity for you to talk back to me a little bit, right? Or let's talk about this one. This one maybe gets maybe a little bit more personal. How about Coke or Pepsi? Either you love Coke or Pepsi. Let me hear you. All right. Good enough. This one gets at the emotional core of who we are. Either we love dogs or we love cats. Dogs is correct. Dogs is correct. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Let's talk about one that is maybe the most important of them all. How you mount your toilet paper. Over. Under. Now, some people aren't participating in this because they're like, I have a bidet, so I don't, uh, don't even have to do that. That's good. 
But we are in church, so we should talk about churchy things. Let's talk about this one. I've heard this one a ton in the last couple of years. If Jesus were to come back today, we know for a fact, with 100% certainty, that he would vote Republican. Oh, no, we know for a fact that he would vote Democrat. Uh, let's move on. Let's move on to something more personal, because y'all are going to, like, lunch with family, and, like, the pastor just set up a whole new conflict for you to talk about. So we'll move on to something more personal, okay? How about this one? Either my life should feel like Easter all the time. Should feel like joy and hope and peace and love all of the time. And if it doesn't, well, then there's, there's something wrong with me. Or there's something wrong with God and he didn't hold up his promises. Either it's Easter Sunday in my life all the time or it's Good Friday, which doesn't feel good at all. My life is filled with pain and filled with suffering all the time. And so what's the hope in believing in the first place anyway? See, the way that we present Easter, the way that we talk about Easter, is it perpetuates this sort of either-or mentality. It's all hope, all joy, all the time. So just believe and just sing this song with joy. Just sing it out. Don't doubt. Just believe. Just mask your pain for today. And just move on. Just fake it till you make it. You've heard that phrase before. We live in an either-or mentality, and oftentimes preachers, and my experience of Easter has been this case where we can't deal with these conflicting forces of goodness and grief or anguish and satisfaction. We live in either-or land. And then what happens as a result of that is the way that Easter is presented sometimes and the way that it was experienced by me is that this faith that we hold so dear to us becomes compartmentalized. We have an incredibly hard time embracing complexity. It's all disconnected. It's hard to understand what God is doing. Well, there's maybe one more verse that we could talk about. There is one more verse. Verse 12, maybe that will clean it all up for us and give us a nice, neat Easter message. Let's check it out. Verse 12, it says this. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier. All right, good start. Because he exposed himself to death. Wah, wah. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Wait a second. Maybe there's, maybe there's more to that. Maybe it'll get to Easter. Nope. Nope. That's the end. That's the end of the prophecy. Happy Easter. I mean, we like the victorious part. Like, we like the victorious soldier. That feels good. We like thinking about God as sort of a victorious military figure. Yes, he is on our side and he will fight our enemies. He will conquer land. We love talking about that, don't we? Even if it means perpetuating more violence, but, but as long as it's justified violence, then we're good with it, right? We love God as a victorious soldier. But... Ah, man, uh, it's a little confusing talking about this next part. He, he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. What is that about? That seems a little confusing. That word rebels probably isn't the best English translation of this Hebrew idea. The Hebrew actually better translates to the word transgressors or sinners or opponents of God. So we look at this and say he's interceding for the opponents of God, he's advocating for the opponents of the move of God. That seems a little odd, but not only that, he is counted among them, which means he identifies as an opponent of God. Wait a second, how does this work? 
The the servant of God is supposed to receive honors of a victorious soldier. He is supposed to experience victory, yet he identifies as an opponent of God. What? God, whose side are you on? Are you even for me? Do you even want me to succeed? Do you even want me to experience joy and goodness out of my current circumstances. This is yet another, a third contradiction of these conflicting forces. We've got goodness and grief, anguish and satisfaction, victory yet opposition. And the final parts of this prophecy. What are we supposed to do with this? It feels unresolved. It feels like, man, I don't even know if God's on my side. It just feels like one giant contradiction. Where's Easter in this? And some of you are like, well, Jared, I've been in church a long time. This is your first Easter message. So let me give you a little tip. Just get to the New Testament. Get to Jesus. Because then it gets all cleared up. All right, so we get to Jesus. But what we often forget is that very few are willing to embrace Jesus as he is. Most of the crowd wants to force Jesus to become who they think he should be. They want to force him into some kind of image that mixes better with whatever image that they get in the Old Testament, whatever metaphor, whatever symbol is in the Old Testament to describe this servant. They want a victorious soldier. They want a military king. They want a political king or they want a lion because again, we want control. We want finality. Just to give you examples of a couple of the crowds who are identified in the scriptures, we've got the Pharisees, right? They're the religious experts. They know the law backwards and forwards. And Jesus is also one of them, except he does things outside of their scope. He breaks all of their rules. They hate him because he upsets their rituals. And not only that, but to top it off, he starts inviting all of the dirty, marginalized people to be with him. So, so that can't work. That can't coexist. Not only that, but his closest followers are sick and tired of it whenever he brings about the concept of suffering and of death. They say, Jesus, stop talking about that stuff. No, 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 no. No, it's not going to be that way with you. Stop talking about it. You're not going to die. That's not how it's going to be with you. And then we can expand it out to the crowds, the giant crowds who are following Jesus decide that Jesus is going to be their victorious soldier. So they want to forcibly make him their king. They try to put him in a position of power and yet Jesus sneaks away over and over again. And so by the time that he actually dies, all of his followers scatter. They think the movement is done and over with. And so by the time that the resurrection actually comes around, everybody's too depressed to even notice when Jesus is standing there with them physically in the flesh. See, here's the thing, is that most of the first century people never anticipated the resurrection. They weren't expecting Easter. You know why? Because they never embraced suffering and death to begin with. They didn't believe that this servant that Isaiah is speaking about was actually truly supposed to die. Most of the belief 
in the first century world was that this figure, this rescuer, was going to be some kind of immortal, that he would never die. And if he's never supposed to die, then why would he need to rise from the dead? Why would there need to be resurrection? Why would there need to be Easter if he was never supposed to die in the first place? See, we have a hard enough time accepting his death, accepting suffering, so we can't figure out what to do with resurrection. And in their minds, death and life can't coexist. These are conflicting forces that do not work. The either-or mentality. And so then what we do as pastors is we don't like complexity, right? Like we can't deal with all of the complexity. We don't want to speak about complexity and nuance, certainly not on Easter, because that doesn't work, right? We We want to talk about hope and joy all the time. And we want to make it easy for you. We are addicted to coming up with overly simplistic and practical solutions for seemingly really complex matters of life, unresolved matters of life. We're addicted to doing that. We want to make it super easy. Do you know why? Because we want you to come back. We want you to come back over and over because, truthfully, confessionally, we are so deeply insecure That if we don't put butts in seats, then we're not worth our salt. We got to get people to come back. And so we make it easy and we eliminate complexity. And the way that we present Easter comes off as this fake plastic version of Jesus. The reality of the story isn't that way. See, the way that Easter has been presented in the churches that I've been a part of, the way that Easter has been presented, it almost sounds like Jesus shows up on the scene, he's resurrected, he, and anytime he enters a room, he's like, ta-da, right? In like a Broadway voice for some reason. And then all of his disciples respond with this ecstatic joy of like, oh, well done, good job, Jesus, good show, bravo, as if they're all British somehow. Everything is right with the world once again. Now let's go start the church. That's how we think it goes. And so then we all show up on Easter, Easter Sunday. We, you know, we put up our Easter best. Some of y'all are looking really nice today, right? Like a little bit more. I wore a collar today. So that was graduation up, you know, like we all try to put our best face on for Easter because we feel this pressure that we're supposed to believe that it's all supposed to work out and it's all hope, it's all joy all the time on Easter except that doesn't matter and mix with everyday real life. We feel this pressure that we're supposed to have our world all put together when it's not. And that puts us in this place of pressure. And we perpetuate this plastic version of Easter that is disconnected from and in conflict with real life, unresolved life. So why even get up on this stage? I'll tell you, I still have hope. I still believe there is something to share. But I think it's a subtle and different lens through which to share it. See, I think there's actually another version, another story that we can tell that hasn't been told typically on Easter. It's this idea that if we tell the story 
as it actually is, it can actually release us from the pressure to fake it until we make it. As long as we simply stick to the story as it is. What am I talking about? Well, there's four gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? They all tell the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. They all have their slightly different versions of the story. Some have more details than others. In the book of Mark, if you've ever read the book of Mark and you go all the way to the end in chapter 16, what you will see is three different endings in the book of Mark. That's kind of weird, right? Especially if you're newer to the Bible. It's not like a choose-your-own-adventure. It's not that way. It's not like, oh, I'll just, I'll pick this ending. I like that one. That fits well with me. No, that's not what it is. It's, it's the conflict of, of trying to understand ancient literature and, and different manuscripts that were or were not available at the time. And so you have these different understandings based on what they found. There's an original ending, there's a second ending, and a third ending. And there's lots of different debate and lots of different theories as to why that is and what those endings are and what they're supposed to signify. I have my own theories, and actually one of my theories connects to what we're talking about today. See, I think the original ending, as it is, feels a little unresolved. And so we've got to clean it all up. We've got to bring some resolution. You want to know what the last verse in Mark chapter 16, verse 8 says in the original ending? Check it out. Verse 8, the women fled from the tomb after they had encountered the risen Jesus, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. The end. That, that's how it ends. The last word in the book of Mark is a word associated with fear, with disbelief, with doubt, with uncertainty, with unresolved conflict. Wait, that, that's, that can't be how it ends. It can't end there. So what... There are some other endings as well that we can read about. And the second ending says basically, well, you know, salvation came to the whole world and Jesus was king and forever and amen and everything is good, right? Like we need that closure. We need the finality to take place. But you know what? I, I think this ending is actually a good thing. Is actually an even more hope-filled thing that I think this is the most Eastery message that we could share. Do you know why? Because I think it makes Easter way more relatable. Because our lives are unresolved. Our lives are filled with conflict. Yes, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And we too will rise, but not yet. And so what do we do in the not yet? How do we find hope in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our circumstances? See, the predominant story after Jesus is resurrected is actually way more fear and doubt and confusion. And yes, there is a mixture of joy and peace and love, but it takes a minute for the followers to reshape, reset, reorient their expectations of what they thought Jesus was going to be. They've got to reshape their understanding so that it matters with real life. When I meet with people all throughout the year, but specifically around the Easter season, There's difficulty in being able to proclaim he is risen indeed to talk about Easter because it feels unrealistic to imagine that some future resurrection is even possible when they're already dealing with the suffering of their current reality. 
Just the other day, I'm sitting with a friend who's a part of our church who has the biggest roller coaster of his life right now because in October, he's baptized and there's new life and there's excitement and then a week later, he's married and I get to be a part of his marriage and then he doesn't know how long that marriage is actually going to last because his wife has a cancerous tumor. And then a month and a half ago, she loses the battle. How do I sit in the pain and the complexity of that with him in the midst of a season of hope and resurrection and joy? How do we do that? Especially if we have not been formed to believe that suffering and resurrection can coexist and must coexist. Especially when we've been formed in this either-or mentality. See, I think my job as a pastor is not to give us certainty to mask all of the pain or not to clean everything up with a nice, neat bow, but instead to walk alongside us as we work through the complexities of our pain and suffering and find hope in the midst of that pain. See, joy and glory that comes with Easter only comes by God's proximity through pain and from suffering. That's the only way that Easter is possible. So why do we try to mask it? Why do we try to say, just get over it, just sing this song with joy and hope? Why do we not allow these conflicting forces to coexist and find hope in the midst of it? That God is close to the brokenhearted, not close to the winners, not close to those who have it all figured out, not close to those who are all cleaned up. If you are perfect, this might not be the best church for you. It's not going to work out. We can be friends, but it's going to be hard. We're going to run into some things. The goal is not to mask it. And not even on Easter, the goal is not to mask it. See, the move from Good Friday to Easter is, I believe, God's way of trying to communicate to us that your pain and your joy, your confusion and your hope can and must coexist together. But here's the good news, is that it was his sacrificial love that motivated him to join you in it. See, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. But that means his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is now with you, joining you in the midst of your pain. So you can bring your questions. You can bring your doubts. You can bring your confusion. You can bring your fear. You can bring your suffering to Easter. And God is with you in the midst of it. He's not on some mountaintop or in some ivory tower looking down at you, scolding, saying, just get up to where I am. Just do better. Just fix it. Stop sinning. Stop making mistakes. No, no, no. He joins you in the pit of your sorrow and your despair. And he gives you hope and grace in the midst of it. Amen? Amen. Let me try this one more time. You can use English or any other language that you want. He is risen. Let me try that one more time. He is risen. Would you rise with us? Would you put out your hands, put up your hands 
and cry out to God. God, we don't know why we're in this situation that we're in. We don't know why there continues to be violence and pain and suffering all around us. And we don't know how to celebrate your risenness in the midst of our pain. But God, would you give us a heart? Would you give us a strength? Would you give us your grace and an ability to allow our pain and our joy to coexist? And if we don't know you, I just sense that there are some people that would say, I I don't know if I believe all this stuff. I'm just here because my aunt forced me to be here. I'm just here because my dad forced me to be here. So I'll put on a good show. I'll fake it. If that's you, be released from the pressure to fake it. You can confront the brokenness. God's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your questions. His firm foundation is not so that we can have all of the answers, so that we can be certain on every matter. No, let him be the firm foundation. You take your brokenness, you take your weakness, and you rest on that. Let's sing about that God right now. Welcome back. I hope that you were challenged by that message and maybe even encouraged by that message uh, just to be okay with the waiting or, or okay with the unresolved tension of scripture and maybe even of some of the situations in your lives. I think Pastor Jared's message was powerful, and honestly, I don't know if I've ever heard a message quite like it on Easter, so I hope that gives you plenty to think about and be encouraged by and to dwell on throughout this week. Uh, But if you need anything, uh, whether that's prayer or other kinds of support, please feel free to reach out. Again, the Connect card is going to be the best way for you to do that. But I hope you have a blessed week. I hope that this week you find comfort in the waiting, comfort in the unresolved and the tension. Uh, Just know that God is with you, like Pastor Jared said. Have a blessed week, and we'll catch up with you real soon.